Hi, and welcome to our Indie Books International Marketing with a Book podcast, uh, where we produce an episode every week with an in-studio audience. And our focus is on marketing with a book and how important it is to write the right book as a gateway book for doing more of the good work that you are called and compelled to do. We believe strongly that your book is a gateway tool for more keynote speeches, more coaching clients, more consulting assignments, more training engagements, um, as well as just simply selling uh, more books uh, out in the marketplace. So thank you for joining us. We have a uh, we have a great interview coming up, as we always do, and uh, we post these episode, episodes across a number of channels and platforms, so um, come back often, and, and uh, we look forward to meeting you at some point in the future. Um, we always begin by having an author's roll call of our indie books uh, authors, so I would love to just invite our authors to um, share their name, where they're from, and their current or next book uh, assignment. So why don't we start with uh, David Goldman and then Henry. Thanks, Mark. As Mark has said, I'm David Goldman. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I wrote the book, The Road to Happiness, How to Get What You Really Want. Thank you, David. Henry and then uh, Diane. Hi, I'm Henry DeVries. I'm the co-author of the book Rainmaker Confidential. I wrote it with Scott Love and Mark LeBlanc. And I live in San Diego, California. And I am the CEO of Indie Books International. Thank you, Henry. And that boy, that uh, gives me a plug too. Uh, honored to be the co-author with you and Scott Love. Uh, Diane, then Dr. Carey. Hello, everyone. My name is Diane Ploys. I live in the East Bay of San Francisco. My book in progress is Questions to Ask Before You Buy a Franchise. Nice. Thank you, Diane. Uh, Dr. Carey? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carey from Denver, Colorado. My book is in the galley editing stage. It's very exciting, called Self-Help on the Go. Great. Joe Palo and then Mary? Hi, I'm Joe Palo. I'm author of How to Sell Nothing, and I'm in Shoreview, Minnesota. Great. Thank you, Joe. Mary and then Mason. Yes. Hello, everyone. I'm Mary Schmidt from Edina, Minnesota, and my book is Make or Break Conversations, How Smart Financial Professionals Land and Keep Clients for Life. Oh, thank you, Mary. And uh, Patrick McGowan. I know how to hit the mute button because I'm a professional. <laughs> Patrick, um, yes. uh, what, what book are you currently working on? My book is called Across the Lens, Why Better Video Presence Leads to More Connection and More Business. Great. Thank you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. You got a great smile, Patrick. <laughs> You've got a even great smile the, for video. Even at the end of the day. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, let's get uh, let's get the show on the road. 
Uh, it is my distinct honor and pleasure to introduce to you a young man uh, from St. Paul, Minnesota, by way of Baghdad, Iraq. John Daniel uh, is with us today, and I first met John, I want to say about four years ago, maybe five years ago. And John uh, is a young uh, emerging professional speaker and author and entrepreneur. Uh, he has certainly um, uh, experienced the good, the bad, the ugly, and the great in both his uh, personal and business life. And uh, John, I'd love uh, to get pinned next to you right now and um, just start by saying welcome. Hello, excuse me. Hello, everyone. This is John Daniel, and I'm coming to you from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I've had the honor and the pleasure of knowing Mr. Mark <clears throat> for the last few years, and uh, my life has never been the same. And I'm honored today to be with you today and um, share a little bit about my story. Um, well, and, it, and it's your story that got you here. <laughs> and we, we believe uh, at Indie Books International that uh, story matters, uh, whether you are writing the right book or whether you are doing a presentation uh, or a workshop of some uh, type uh, or including it on your website, uh, your story matters. And you certainly have um, a, a fascinating story of how you got from Baghdad uh, to St. Paul, Minnesota. Why don't you just take a few minutes and, and give us some insight and background on your story? Yeah. So it all started as a normal day. Uh, woke up in the morning, living my normal life. And it was time to go to bed. And uh, I was speaking with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, I was telling her that I need to go finish my homework and then I need to go to sleep to be ready for school the next day. Uh, she said, well, why don't we just keep talking for a little bit longer and you can come early to school and you can just copy my homework. And I said, <clears throat> what a wonderful plan. So we kept talking and all of a sudden I fall asleep. Um, then all I hear was a loud sound. Uh, it was opening of the door Then my dad came in and knocked the door and he carried me out of the bed and he started running outside. Um, I didn't know what was happening. I was still half asleep, trying to feel what's happening. And I thought I was having a heart attack. So my dad gets me outside, puts me in the back of an SUV and he said, do not move, stay here. Then he goes, he went down, uh, brought my other brother, my mom and my younger brother came in uh, to the car and. I asked my dad again, what's happening? And dad said, we're going on a vacation. We are late to our airplane, so we have to leave right now. All right, dad, uh, I need to pack. Well, we don't have time. So we start driving to the airport. And once we get to the airport, uh, turns out that my dad did not have any tickets at the time. Um, so he asks the reception, uh, the person was there and was like, I just need a ticket to the closest country with the soonest airplane. And that was Lebanon. So we get to the airplane, we arrive to Lebanon, we get checked into a hotel. 
And the next day was uh, the day that my dad broke the news uh, to us. Uh, my dad was drinking his tea and we as a Middle Eastern, we, we drink tea any part of the day. So it was just a normal thing. But that morning was a little bit different. My dad was mixing his tea and then he was going uh, opposite the uh, clockwise, and, but he's not drinking his tea. And then my dad looks at us and he said, we're not going back to Iraq anymore. And I looked at my dad and my dad has a really good sense of humor, but that time was different. So I look at my mom trying to confirm, is this true or not? And my mom had tears in her eyes. She didn't want to let them out, but she had those tears that it, it almost confirmed it was true. So I looked at my dad and I said, dad, what, what do you mean we're not going back anymore? I have my school back home, my friends, family, relatives, my girlfriend that I'm supposed to meet for, for a homework. Uh, what about my video games that I left behind? Um, it turned out that my dad had received three letters, three envelopes. Um, he ignored the first two, but the third one was different. The, the third envelope arrived with five bullets inside the envelope, the, the size of my family. And there was a letter that was written in the blood that says, you have less than 24 hours to leave the country. Otherwise you and your family will be killed. And that's when my dad realized that the threats keep coming and they're serious about it. So he left his office and his, his 20 minutes ride coming to pick us up. He's thinking we're dead. He gets us out of the country and now we're, we're in Lebanon. And that's where my life and my family's life changed 180 degrees in a matter of hours. Um, unexpected. There were a lot of emotions at that time. Um, but we were, we were faced with, my dad was faced with a decision that I certainly did not agree in the beginning. Um, but we did not have any option at that time. And, and I grew up to understand why he took that decision. Um, and from there, um, we were in Lebanon. Um, we weren't able to contact any people at back home. My dad didn't want anybody to know where we were. Um, so he wasn't, also he wasn't able to get any of his money out of the country. And two weeks later in Lebanon, um, my dad got a heart attack and I was faced with the, probably the most difficult decision at that time. I was 17 years old and knew nothing knew nobody in Lebanon and I could not reach out to my uncles or the people that I knew back home to ask for help and that's where we found myself my mom and I found ourselves going from a church to a church asking for donations and help so we can do the surgery for my dad and we needed ten thousand dollars at that time and every time we found out it was hard and difficult and we didn't know how we were going to to collect this money one image was going through my head was, how would I ever tell my kids someday that I lost their grandfather because I did not have $10,000?
thankfully, and we're so grateful we were able to collect enough money to do a surgery for my dad and with the help of some churches over there, some organization and the hospital ended up helping us. Uh, we did the open heart surgery for my dad. My dad was 38 years old at that time. Mm. And, and, and thank God he lived, he lived after that. Um, and that was the other, all, all I was focused on was basically just to get the surgery. But the things that happens after the surgery, I wasn't even considering about. Um, and that's where I basically retired my dad since that day. And I started working, um, starting in Lebanon, um, trying to help and take care of my family. And um, from there, we applied for immigration. And we were hoping that we would go to Canada, Australia, or even Germany. Um, but we applied for many places. None of these countries accepted us beside the United States of America. And that was a really hard and difficult decision for us to make because as a 17 year old at the time, all I heard about the United States was, this is the country that came, invaded Iraq. Um, and I had to leave my country and my homeland because of what the US did to us. So that was a very difficult decision for us to make. At the same time, we had no any other option because we couldn't stay in Lebanon any longer. We did not have any visas. We did not have anything. Uh, so we accepted the invitation to come to the United States of America. And that's where another chapter of my story starts. Uh, some of it is hard and there's, there's tears shed and some of them is fun. And, um, you know, the best thing happened to us. And Mr. Mike, do you want me to continue with the story with the with the U.S. here? You know, um, you thank you. You arrived um, uh, in Minnesota, I think, in August. That is correct. So we arrived to Minnesota in August of two thousand and ten. Um, so when we accepted the invitation to come to the United States, uh, the U.N. United Nations, they asked us um, which state uh, we wanted to go to. And we said, well, what do you mean? We thought we're going to the United States. And then they were like, yeah, it is the United States, but there are 50 states and you get to choose. And we were like, well, we don't know. Like, what's the difference? Is it, is it all safe? And they're like, yeah, for the most part. <laughs> so they said, okay, well, we're gonna choose a state and a city for you. And, you know, after you move there and if you don't like it, then we can absolutely move you to another place. And we said, okay. So we got up to Minnesota in August of 2010, and right away while we were here, we, uh, we, we got signed up for high school, and three weeks later, uh, they, the United Nations asked us if we were happy to stay in Minnesota or move someone else, and we said, no, we love it here. We want to stay because, you know, we were going to school. There was a, city, uh, a school bus come pick us up from home, pick us to school. There's breakfast, lunch, back home. Uh, we were like, yeah, no, we love the, we love the, the state here. We, we love the teachers and, and we like the weather. Um, no one, no one mentioned how cold it gets in Minnesota uh, until we, we found out the hard way. It was November 11th, 2010, the first time snowed in Minnesota. I woke up that day and I looked from the window and everything was white. And, and I thought, I was in heaven. But then I looked behind me and my 
younger brother was behind me. And I said, there's no way you would go to heaven with me. So that's how I knew it was a reality. <laughs> Uh, but that's how we, uh, my family and I ended up in Minnesota. We decided to stay here. And then once we found out it was too cold, it was too late to change our decision. John, you didn't speak English when you arrived here. Did anyone in your family speak English? Um, no, um, not me, not anyone in my family spoke um, English. Um, so that was the other thing. When I was back home, I almost graduated from high school. But when I got here, uh, I didn't know a single word of English. Um, but we, in Minnesota, you were still able to go to high school until the age of 21. And I was 19 at the time when I moved to the US. And this is what we had to do to learn English. And it, it took us a, quite some time, but me and, and my younger brother, we did the absolute whatever it took to learn in. And that meant sometimes staying for after school programs, um, going to summer school, session one and session two, um, staying for any activities for the school. And we started to just emerge ourselves with, uh, with the community just so we can, we can learn English. And um, I think we still go through that. We're still trying to learn it. John, I think one of the things that I'd appreciate most about uh, not only what you've gone through, but uh, just who you are is that you do have a whatever it takes mindset and certainly it has not been easy. You have a very, uh, very good command of the English language uh, today, but it could not have been easy uh, because your dad was not well. Uh, you know, he was still in recovery during this period. Um, you also needed to go to work. Um, I mean, you needed to earn an income, did you not? I did, I absolutely did. And uh, that was another, another challenge that I had to go through because um, I, was, I was 19 years old when I moved to the US. So I was at that age where I'm not qualified for any uh, county support or any food stamps or cash. So. Um, it was a time for me to start looking for a job. And there were a lot of uh, challenges with that. And any place, uh, all the places that I applied to, uh, nobody called me back. Everybody was asking for, obviously the first thing, language, experience. Um, and they were asking for, for another thing that I thought it was impossible for me to get. Uh, they were asking for three references to put on the application. And I knew nobody beside my family. And even if I would have put their names, they would have not be able to speak English. Um, so for all the applications, I was literally putting the school phone number and my teachers. And it was probably suspicious for them why I have three references with the same phone number. Uh, nobody, nobody called me. I applied for so many places. I applied for a place to deliver a pizza at pizza and they did not hire me. Um, I'm not gonna tell you the name of that pizza place, it's confidential, uh, but I can tell you this, uh, them not hiring me had a domino effect in my life. <laughs> um, so that was <laughs> one of the challenges that, that I had to go through. Um, I, was, uh, I was telling my teachers about those challenges and as much as I could to, to, you know, to express to my teachers, because I was still learning English, so one of my teachers suggested me to 
uh, start with some volunteer work. And, and, and I said, absolutely, I can start with volunteer work. Uh, what, what does volunteer mean? Uh, she said, that's where you work, but you don't get paid. And I looked at her and was like, what? Why am I working? And, and she explained to me, like people start with volunteer work so they can get you know, their foot in the doors, they can get some experience and uh, possibly get a job from there. But this is something that uh, it could help as a start. Uh, so I agreed to do volunteer work just for the reason of like, I could get immersed with some people so I can speak a little bit more English. My first place I did volunteer at was uh, at the YMCA. Uh, in the beginning, I was working with, with kids and uh, believe it or not, those kids taught me how to speak English. It was like the best thing. If I said something was incorrect, they would correct me or if they did not understand that I knew I was saying something that was not correct. Um, so then I started at the YMCA as a volunteer. Uh, even there, I did what I could to get more hours, to stay there a little bit longer. Uh, they gave me a free membership uh, to work out. So that was one of the benefits. And um, so I was going there to work out, but I also used to tell the people at the front desk, like, hey, if you need me to jump in, if you guys get busy, just let me know. I'll put my shirt on and come and help. And that actually spoke some value to them. And then when they had an opportunity uh, to hire some people, I was one of their, on the top of their list. And I don't know how they hired me, but um, I guess they did. Well, you became one of their rock star recruiters or salespeople. I, I don't know what they referred to the title as, but you were selling memberships at one point. I did. So as when I started as a volunteer, then I got a part-time job. Um, and I did that for about a year while going to school, coming back, um, you know, after 5, 6 p.m., going to, to do some volunteer work. And then obviously that transitioned into a part-time. And then I ended up getting a second part-time job at the YMCA, basically doing custodial work. So after the club gets, uh, gets closed, so I, you know, do vacuuming, cleaning the locker rooms, cleaning the equipments. And when an opportunity uh, uh you know, uh, appeared to be a full-time position in a different location, um, I applied. And that was a little bit of a challenge because the people at the other location didn't really know me much. Um, so, but I think I had a somewhat of a good resume. Some of my coworkers did help me build it. So when I got the interview, um, they were really patient with me. Every time they used to ask me questions, I was like, could you break that down for me a little bit? Can you explain to me a different way? Uh, but one of the things that I joke about was uh, I was for my full time interview, I had uh, the 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 membership director. She was there. Her name was Jessica at the time, and she was asking questions. And then, like ten minutes in, the executive director of the YMCA walks into the room, and as soon as he looks at me, he goes, "Hola," and I looked at him, and I did not understand what he was saying. So he he repeats it again. He goes, "Hola." Now I thought I was too nervous. Uh, that's why I was not understanding what he was saying. <laughs> but then he sat down and then Jessica, she looks at him, she puts it here like this and she goes, he's not Latino. And I think he felt bad. That's why he gave me the job. But that, that's something I joke about. Um, so I got the full-time position at the Y and then literally almost a year later, I was hired back again to the same location that I was when I started when I was a volunteer uh, to sell memberships. And me getting that location um, literally changed my whole entire 
thinking, be getting that position. Um, so I started doing sales and, you know, and, and most of the majority of the sales position is you get some like uh, hourly rate, but also you get your commission raise if you hit your goal. And for the most part, I was hitting my monthly goals almost every single month. And at some point, I was the top uh, membership sales advisor for the Twin Cities for the YMCA. Um, but what, what was a, an aha moment for me at the time was the same person that trained me when I was, when I started as a volunteer, um, she was still there. And, uh, you know, until now, we still talk with, with each other. But what happened was when I started as a volunteer part-time, I wasn't making a lot of money. But when I got into sales, my paycheck exceeded her, pay, her paycheck. And that was like, and I was like wondering, how did that even happen? She's been there longer. Uh, I came after her. She trained me, but now I'm making more money than her. Um, and that's what I realized, like being in sales, um, it was like my great equalizer. You know, it didn't matter that I didn't speak English perfectly or I wasn't born in this country or even if I have an accent, as long as I work hard and do what I'm supposed to do, um, it will be a very level, uh, plain, plain level field. So that's how I started with the wine and I uh, stayed there for like, actually, I'm still employed there barely pick up shifts here and there, but I'm still employed by the way. <laughs> John, um, I think our listeners would be, would be uh, curious to know, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna uh, give them sort of the, uh, what happened, but I want you to fill in the blanks. Um, when you were in Iraq in, and had a girlfriend and was going to high school, did you ever anticipate that you would be an entrepreneur? When I was in Iraq, not at all. Honestly, when I was in Iraq, I did not even think for a second that I would need to work. Um, my family, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad was a very successful, uh, uh, had a very successful career over there. And money was not an issue. We weren't super rich, but we money was not an issue. We used to take, you know, uh, often vacations outside the country, but also I had like my uncles and aunts and over there never thought about me working or doing anything. I was like, if you would call it like that rich spoiled kid, you know, who had his dad taken care of. And, and I was 17 at the time, not in a million years, I thought I would become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Since you came to America, um, you not only were a top uh, salesperson or recruiter for the YMCA, but um, you also flipped seven houses. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, back in 2014, late of 2014, uh, I was up, uh, wasn't able to get to sleep. So I was watching TV and there was a commercial that showed up on TV and says, uh, we will teach you how to flip houses. And there were some people having their own testimonials. I'm not sure if any one of you uh, have seen any of those commercials. Uh, but I saw it, it was at two in the morning. And it said, the person says, all millionaires take action now. So call right now. <laughs> and I was like, it is two in the morning. I'm not going to call you right now. And then the commercial comes up again 15 minutes later. And it's the same commercial. And at the end, it was the same guy who says, take action, call right now. And I was like, no, I'll be embarrassed. You're asleep now. I'm not going to call you right now. And then at 2.30, the same commercial came up. And I said, okay, 
I'm going to call you right now, but if you're mad at me, you know, I'll tell you what, what happened. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to call the person that was in the commercial. Well, I pick up the phone and then end up being a call center. And then basically they just took my information. They're like, yeah, we'll call you tomorrow. They call me the next day and they're like, yeah, we're having a two hour free seminar. And I think it was one of the Hyatt uh, hotels in San Luis Park. And so I, I got the information and I'm just thinking I'm going to go there and they're going to teach me how to make money and, and uh, just be rich. That's what I was thinking. So I showed up to that uh, two hour uh, seminar for free. And mainly it was people telling their stories, coming to the stage, telling the story. Well, I, I came to this program and I, uh, you know, flipped such and such houses and I made such and such money. So I said, wow, that sounds really good. Um, and then there was a guy, his name was Peter, who came in to the stage and he said, uh, we have a 3D workshop in, in Minneapolis and usually it's $5,000. Uh, but if you get it tonight and tonight only, it's going to be $1,400. He's like, as soon as we leave, if you call us tomorrow, we'll be 5000 So if you want to attend this uh, workshop, you have to pay night now. And he's like, no, we'll show you how to flip houses in your backyard and we'll get you the whole entire system. And, and I was like, I had a credit card on me and I had enough limits. So I went back to the stage, just like the rest of the people. And I swiped my credit card, paid $1,400. And... Uh, and I got my little bag with little books and I decided to, you know, leave. And not even a minute later, I make a U-turn and I head back, uh, go back to the same table and I asked for, for a refund. And this person was, uh, his name was John, and who, who just told me the program. And, and he said, why do you want a refund? And I said, well, um, I just remembered that Peter said, that he's gonna show me how to flip a house in my backyard. Um, I forgot to mention that I live in an apartment and I do not have a backyard. And John started laughing so hard. And I'm like, I just want my money back. Why are you laughing? So John calls one of his coworkers and he's like, come, come, listen, listen. So he tell me, why do you want a refund? I was like, well, I don't have a backyard so I can't flip a house in my backyard. So he, he, they started explaining it to me. They're like, John, when we say a backyard, doesn't mean your actual backyard. It means like your own city. And I was like, are you sure? Because I really do, want that, do not want to bring the whole entire house to my apartment. <laughs> so that was like part of it, like me learning some of the idioms and stuff. Um, so, so they did not give me my money back. Uh, I went and attended the three-day workshop. And at the end of the third day, uh, guess what happened? Well, they had, magically, they had another workshop that will be taking place in Orlando. And that workshop costed $30,000. And I was like, no, the, I was there for the whole entire weekend. And, and I liked what they were saying, but I did not have $30,000. So I went to the speaker over there and, and I told him my story. And it's like, I told him, you know, all I have to my name is $6,000, but that's not, not just for me, it's for me and for my family. Um, so he, he asked me, he said, well, how's your credit? And I said, my, my credit, I think it's good. So he had me apply for 17 credit cards that night. And he said, once you get those in the mail, you call us, you make your payments, and then we'll give you the information to, to come to the workshop, the, the three-day workshop, because they're going to show me everything that time.
And so I mean, naively, I got the credit cards and, you know, three weeks later, I was in $30,000 in credit card debt. And in addition to that, another two, 3,000 because I had to pay for my flight and my hotel. And then I'm going to Orlando thinking like, oh, I'm going to be a millionaire. This is it. Like, they're going to show me everything. Well, I got to Orlando. And then by the end of the third day, guess what? Another magic they had, uh, which was another, another course where I get to work with the person that was responsible for everything. Well, I couldn't do that. So I just ended up going back home. And all of a sudden, you know, in a matter of a month, I'm like $35,000 in credit card debt. Um, oh, and, and that didn't bother me much. What bothered me was I didn't speak English very well. So probably half of the things that they taught us over there, I didn't even understand. It just went above my head. So um, I was thinking about it. I was thinking whether I regret this decision or not. Obviously, I, I did regret it in the beginning. Um, but I said, you know what? Let me just give it a try. Let me see what I can do. And in 2015, after looking for, you know, three months trying to look at the house, some houses with the criteria that they taught me how to do it, and I was able to find my first home, and I was able to buy it, get the money, and finance. They taught me how to buy it with with cash, even though I did not have my own money, but I was able to connect with people uh, with the, that I networked with, uh, and then they were the one who funded me for my first house. Actually, I'm sitting in my first house that I ever bought in the United States. We I got it, I flipped it, and it came time to sell it. I just fell in love with it because until that time, we were living in a two-bedroom apartment, me and my family, like five of us. Like if you, if somebody woke up in the morning, went to the restroom, flushed the toilet, everybody wakes up. This is how small the space was. Um, so, so that was my very first home that I flipped. Um, and then from there, it's been just, it's been just a journey where I had obviously to grow a little bit, uh, learn more, get um learned a little bit of the industry but um it was a very challenging thing and the whole entire way i was like trying to fake it until i make it um, mm -hmm. i remember the first time i brought the contractor to give me a bid and how much it's gonna cost him and i we went to the to the bathroom and he was like well we need to put a brand new bathroom here and then he said we should put a tile around around the, the walls and i said tile now, I didn't know what tile meant, but I took my phone really quick and I, I thought he said title. So I went to the Google and I put title bathroom. Google also corrected, goes to tiles bathroom. And I looked at it, I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. I put the phone in my pocket and I go, of course, we're going to put tiles here. Like, what else are we going to do? And like 30 seconds later, I didn't, 30 seconds before, I did not know what tile meant. Um, but yeah, and it's since 2015, I have flipped. Um, seven properties. I live in one now. I have a couple of rental properties. Um, they're, well, they're, thank God they've been rented and, and the rent has been going just great. But that was uh, one of the, probably the riskiest thing I've ever done without thinking about. Mm. John, you've also had some success in the insurance and financial services business. Um, and you built a team of uh, insurance uh, agents and advisors. And so you, you've had some success as a young entrepreneur uh, against incredible odds. By the way, we are all familiar with these infomercials late at night. Uh, we may not all have signed up for the, uh, for the $1,400 seminar, but most of us at one point have gone to uh, one of the free seminars for something. 
whether it was real estate or some type of network marketing, uh, very difficult to uh, escape those, especially when you're under 30. <laughs> and you know my story, I've been on my own since I was 21. And I think I was approached for every free seminar uh, before I was 30 that was known to mankind. Um, when you look back, you, you have really done whatever it would take. And you also have taken responsibility for your family's well-being, um, your brothers uh, in medical school, um, your younger brother uh, is now, I think, close to being a teenager. Yeah, he's um, 16. 16. Um, and so he was uh, very young when you left uh, Iraq and, and went through all of this. So, you know, my heart goes out to you and your family, and I, I know your parents, and um, I always enjoy my interactions with them. When you think about all of this, what is your uh, dream? Where, what does your next chapter include? So when I think about it now, and obviously, sometimes I think about it because I just turned 30 and my, uh, my thoughts are a little bit different, but I grew up in a country where I did not have a lot of freedom and I did not have a lot of control, but I did not know anything else. Now that I moved to the United States, I live in a country that I'm, I truly, I'm free to get to do what I want, especially with uh, running a business, capitalism, entrepreneurship, free enterprises. Um, what's, what's for me next is obviously I wanna keep taking care of my family. I wanna, stay in business, stay being an entrepreneur, but at some point when the time is right for me, um, or when the time is right, period, um, I'd like to become a public speaker or be a public speaker where I can do more of uh, the good work that I'm called and compelled to do. I heard that from you. Uh, go around the world and, and share the message that, you know, things are not gonna go the way you want them. Uh, just share the story. Uh, alongside with that, gratitude, resilience, and hope. Um, when I look in my life, not in a million years, I would imagine where I am today. Um, especially that night when I was, when we left Iraq, we got to Lebanon and just find out that everything I've had, everything I've worked for, everything I begged my parents to have, were gone just like that. I, I don't, I don't have any pictures of my childhood there. They, they were all left behind. So what I would like for myself and, and what's next for me would be um, become a speaker and, and go and inspire people and hopefully build a little bit more perspective to live uh, a life that's a little bit less stressed. John, um, there are people of all ages that may listen to this interview or hear you speak, there are people that are much older than you that um, have an incredible amount of talent, uh, but yet uh, I'm not so sure would do whatever it would take uh, to make something great um, happen in their life or their work. You've, you've experienced more by the time you were 30 than most people will experience in a lifetime. What, what piece of advice would you have for those, whether they're 50 or 40 or 
25. Um, do you have uh, three or two tips or ideas that you'd like to share with us? I do actually. And as you know, these ideas, I've been using it for myself um, to help me get to, to the next level that I want to be. Um, and it's, it comes about building perspective. Um, one thing um, I look at life and you've described it, you know, the roller coaster and sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's not. Uh, I came to describe it that life is like, when I look at it, like, it, not sure if any of one of you played this board game called Shoots and Ladders. And sometimes you have a really good dice and then you hit a home run and then you're in the next step. But sometimes you just kind of go down the slide or you get, get bitten by a snake and you're going to go down. Um, as long as you're still playing the game, as long as you're in the game, as long as we're still in the game, and what I call the game, like the game of life, um, at some point we're going to hit a home run. Just giving up is, is the last thing somebody could do. Just quitting. As soon as you quit and if you're not, if you don't have a high score, you, you're lost. But who's, who's making the rules and who's saying when the game is going to end? Pretty much it's you. Um, the other advice I would give people sometimes, uh, give people sometimes is it's really good to slow down to speed up. And I had to go through this uh, probably the last I would say 18 months or so, uh, maybe a little bit longer, um, slowing down, um, understanding that you, you're playing with your, on your own team, not against yourself. Um, these were some of the tips that I would give people. Well, I think the world needs to read your story. And so I hope in the not too distant future, there will be uh, I mean, I see a book in your future. I know that that uh, I know there's a book inside of you. Um, and this story is incredibly captivating. And the lessons that uh, you have learned along the way will uh, inspire many. I think the world needs to read you. I think the world uh, needs to hear you um, share this message. And my, uh, my fear for you, uh, if I may, is that uh, you will lose this whatever it takes mindset. Um, you know, sometimes they say that children are their most creative or they're most uh, willing to take risks up until the time they're about five years old. And then somehow they lose that creativity or they lose that willingness to take a risk. And so my hope is that you, um, you hang on with all of your muscle and your might uh, to this attitude, uh, these values of family and a mindset of whatever it takes. Because as I shared with you, the world needs to hear this story uh, and be inspired about it. Whether you're 21 years old or you know, whether your audience members are 49 years old, um, there's, there's more to be uh, accomplished. If you could... If you could go back, um, and I, I'm not sure, uh, maybe to your 16-year-old self, uh, you know, before the, before the before your dad woke you up in the middle of the night and carried you out, if you could go back to that young John Daniel and give him a piece of advice, what what would that piece of advice be? I would. I would definitely, I would definitely 
tell him to not worry about the small little things. I used to make a big deal off of if I did not get, you know, the latest PlayStations or the latest phone at that time, or if my friends had something that was better than what I had, um, I used to, I used to think a lot about other, what other people thought of me. And I always wanted to be the first. Mm-hmm. Looking at it right now, none of these things matter. And, and even when I came to the United States, I, I was at some point with that, you know, I, I cared about what kind of car I wanted to drive or, or how people perceived me. Uh, but now what matters to me is honestly getting a good, a, a good night's sleep, you know, hitting that benchmark. If I can get a good, a good seven, eight hours of sleep, that's like a win for me. Showing up to the gym and taking care of my health, that's a win for me. Not knowing what other people think about me to a certain extent and making my decisions based on what I want and not someone else, um, that's what matters to me because I've, I've done it. I mean, you know, I'm still 30 years old. You know, some of you might say you're still young, but for me, I, I feel like I'm growing. You know, I feel like time is also going to, you know, pass me by if I don't do different decisions. But there were some times that I've made decisions based on other people and what they're going to think about me. And at the end, they didn't even care. So that's that what I would the advice I would give myself, you know. Thank you, John. Well, thank you so much for being uh, with us today and sharing your story. It's it's always a pleasure for me and an honor uh, to me to hear your story. Um, We are going to go to commercial break. Uh, We have another author that I would like to hear from. Uh, Mason Harris, can you tell us about your book? Sure. Uh, hi, Mark. First, I got to say, John, that was a wonderful story as uh, the uh, son of immigrants as well. Uh, I admire what you did. And uh, like, as Mark says, I think you have a story that needs to be shared. Your attitude of a uh, land of opportunity and you can overcome a, every obstacle is something that a lot of people should be learning from. Sorry, Mark, for that. I, I, that was my commercial for John. Um, my name is Mason Harris. I'm based in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, my book is, where do I have my book? Well, my book is The Chutzpah Advantage. I think a number of people already know that. Um, and uh, I enjoy these weekly gatherings. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Mason. And uh, for uh, this week's uh, episode, Uh, Thank you, John Daniel, for taking the time to be with us and sharing your uh, captivating uh, and inspiring story. Thank you to the Indie Books uh, authors, uh, our friends and family uh, of authors, and um, make a note uh, if you enjoyed uh, this interview, uh, come back to YouTube or Spotify or iTunes, uh, because every week uh, we interview someone interesting Uh, someone that is interested uh, in sharing more uh, of their wisdom, uh, experience, expertise, and strategies, and best practices for living a better life and becoming as successful as you are capable of becoming. Uh, Henry DeVries is the uh, CEO of Indie Books International. Uh, He was kind enough to give me the title of, of chairman, and we would love to Uh, invite you into our family. You can find out more at IndieBooksIntl.com. That's Indie, I-N-D-I-E, BooksIntl.com. Thank you so much, and that's a wrap.